Canucks earn a weekend split as their challenging road trip continues. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, also covering the team for The Athletic. Canucks Hour, as always, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Day off for the Canucks today as they uh, prepare to play the final game of this road trip tomorrow in Nashville. But what a weekend! Packed with not just hockey, NFL action as well. Of course, we'll keep it focused on the Canucks. And they get a much-needed win, I think it's fair to say, Drancer, in Washington yesterday after the way this road trip started. Of course, the two games on the weekend, dropping one in Carolina, winning in Washington. And the conversation around the Canucks, and I think the feeling inside the Canucks dressing room, going to be a lot more positive today as a result of that performance in Washington than it could have been otherwise. No question. I mean, I thought they played re- – I, I didn't think. They did. They played really well on Sunday. I thought it was a little weird when the referee took out one of the Capitals players with time expiring. That was a weird way for them to lose. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, that was the Cowboys. Um, but the <laughs> uh, – look, the the Capitals, out without John Carlson without, and without TJ Oshie, were outmatched by the Canucks. Frankly, the Canucks could have won that game by a more comfortable margin than they did, and the only reason the Capitals hung around was their meat grinder power play, right? Yep. And and that sort of spotlights one issue we've seen from the Canucks resurface on this trip, which is their penalty kill, but their five-on-five game took over a game. Like, it took over a game against the Capitals. I know they got their first goal on the power play, but they... You know, like I'm thinking about this shift late in the second period, and it's Horvat, or sorry, it's Pearson, Miller, Besser, and they sort of spread out wide and almost set up a power play formation. Capitals had no answer for it. It was like 45 seconds of zone time, and we've seen them actually do that a fair bit this trip, but without results. It's just it feels so much more commanding when the Canucks are up, yeah, and they finally were up against the Capitals, and they kept coming. And look, I think they showed a resilience considering the way the road trip was going and the way Saturday's game against Carolina looked where they were pretty roundly manhandled oh, in yeah. my view. Um, you know, in November, this snowballs, no question in my mind. Right. And this weekend they managed to pull it out. They got a win and they've set themselves up with a shot to come back from this meat grinder road trip. I've used meat grinder a bunch of times, but I mean, it's the right term. To come back from this road trip with four points, uh, we said it before. If you come back, that would with be more, a success. If you come back with more than three, that's you know fantastic. Yep. And and they've got a shot to do it against a Nashville team that's going to be playing the second leg of back to backs on Tuesday. I, I, huge game, huge game, huge win, impressive performance. And uh, you're right. Not not only could it have snowballed from a game to game perspective after the first three games on the road trip, but it could have snowballed because they were down again in Washington, right? Just like they'd trailed and given up the first goal in the first three games. So I do think they deserve a lot of credit on the second game of a back-to-back, another early start, same goalie in that, that, okay, you're down one nothing. They didn't let it snowball. They found a way to get back in that game. And you're right, they did do some damage on the power play, but the five-on-five play, and I thought particularly, like everyone knows, the, the Miller line was exceptional. 
and it was good to see them get rewarded with the empty net goal at the end. But the second Pedersen goal, it came after one of those sequences, which we haven't seen from the Canucks a lot this year, which was the Miller line was on and had fantastic pressure in the Washington zone. And I think Washington just got it over the blue line to clear it, but not an actual clear. The Canucks immediately regained possession. So the Canucks were able to execute a line change, immediately regain the zone, get the Pedersen line out there. Caps couldn't change, and you just rolled over the pressure from one shift to the next. And, you know, that's something over the last couple of years we've seen other teams do to the Canucks. Fairly regularly. <laughs> right? And it ultimately results in a goal. But we haven't seen that a ton from the Canucks. And I thought that was really a positive sign where, you know, it's not just one line clicking right now. We can sustain this. We can keep it rolling. And as you said, Washington didn't have an answer for that. Well, and even in... And it ends up in a goal. Even in the Boudreaux bump games, right? In the early part of those games, the Canucks really had one line going, which was the Miller line yep. with Pe- Pearson and Besser. And the other lines were kind of coming out even. You know, there wasn't a ton of heavy shifts one way or the other. And since the Canucks put Pedersen onto the wing against Tampa Bay, they've controlled 70% of expected goals with Pedersen on the ice at 5-on-5. That's worked. Like, that's worked. He could have easily four points, five points, since since that move was made. They were great against Tampa Bay. They were good against Carolina. And they were scintillating against Washington on Sunday. And... If you can have more than, like, when this team's had one line that's regularly controlling play, considering that the lotto line didn't work in the fall, considering yep. all the combinations they've tried, that's that's big for this team. If they can get two lines going, then you start to become the team that people saw in their mind's eye when they considered who this club could be. Especially, you know, it's especially important because, you know, I don't think there's a lot of supporting offense here. I don't think there's enough of a push from the blue line outside of number 43. And, you know, goals, offense, has ultimately been this club's bigger issue than defense or defending, because the defense is a huge part of their offensive issues, but defending hasn't actually been no. this team's problem. Counter to our expectations, it's really been the thrust, the the attack, the danger, the threat from their offensive players or from their offensive play in general. If you can get two lines going in some sort of a sustainable way, I mean, that's a pretty interesting proposition for the next 20, 25 games for this team. Well, and as Bruce Boudreaux said after the game last night, and to your point about, you know, supporting offense, he talking about Elias Pettersson, he said, we don't have a lot of natural goal scorers on this team necessarily, right? Good players in the forward group, but not necessarily pure natural goal scorers. So they need, you know, everyone who could potentially fall under that heading, like Elias Pettersson, they really need those guys going. We'll have the Pettersson conversation throughout the course of, of the show, by oh, the will way. Will we? We're going to oh, yeah. do we'll, that? We'll probably okay. talk about Elias Pettersson, yeah, believe it enough. or not. Uh, hey, in a good way. The, more streets, this the time. streets are talking about Elias Pettersson, says are. Bruce Boudreau. Uh, I loved that. Did you hear that? I loved that. He, yeah. was like, he was like, you're hearing it on the streets? I was like, what? This is great. I love it. It's Vancouver, man. Welcome to the fish Fabulous. Bowl. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online. Yeah, tell us what the streets are saying. Com. Yeah, hit us up from the streets with your the view from the streets on the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> How they've performed so far on this road trip. And I, I do want to kind of take a step back because we talked so much about this being a measuring stick road trip. And certainly, you know, I did the post game show after the Carolina game. To me, that was the worst performance from the Canucks on this road trip so far. Also clearly the best performance from an opposing team. I was extremely impressed with how the Carolina Hurricanes played in They're that good. game. They're very, very They're good. good. But the mood, I will tell you, the mood on the streets after that game was, you know, the Canucks have been exposed, blow it up, detonate it, trade not necessarily everyone, but trade an awful lot of people because they're clearly not good enough. 
Now, one game isn't necessarily going to change a lot of people's attitudes about that, but I do think what we've seen so far on this road trip, there's clearly an upper crust of teams. And if you want to say top five, top six, wherever you want to draw the line on that upper crust, where there's a significant, very large separation between those teams and the Canucks, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? We knew that. No one, I don't think anyone went into this road trip thinking, oh, this is a Stanley Cup contender. This team could be one of the top five teams or so in the league. So, yeah, it's disappointing or it's frustrating to see it play out, even if you know it intellectually, but we also kind of knew that was the case. But I do think that Washington game kind of illustrates, like, I wouldn't have Washington as a top five or top six team in the NHL. They're in that next tier where they're still good, still impressive, you know, not pushovers by any stretch. But when the Canucks have multiple things clicking, and I mean specifically their special teams, their five-on-five game, their goaltending – they can be very competitive about teams in that Washington tier, right? Teams in tier two. Now, however you want to break down the tiers in the NHL, you know, if there's four or five, whatever. But the Canucks can be competitive with that kind of just sub-elite tier. But they need a lot going well, right? As we've talked about, they've been, you know, surprisingly strong at five on five. That continued in the Washington game. But Bruce Boudreaux has talked about they need to be scoring on the power play. They need to have really strong special teams to be in those games. And I think what we're seeing is they're a team that needs everything clicking to be competitive with that next tier. But what's really struck me about Florida, Tampa, Carolina is they have multiple ways to win, right? They, they're elite five on five teams, but also very good on special teams, but also have very strong goaltending. And I think that's kind of the next leap for the Canucks, right? Is to go from, Hey, we can be competitive if every part of our game is firing on all cylinders to, We have some redundancies built in. We can go on a cold streak on the power play and still find a way to eke out wins because we're so good on five on five. We can outscore our goaltender not being godlike for a game, which right now is not the case, right? I mean, Demko was fantastic on Sunday and they needed it, right? This team needs, you're right, the margin for this team is fine. Very fine. Very, very fine. As fine as a Pedersen finish after he dekes a fronting defender on the power play to get off the schneid. Um that's that's not the mark of a durable no. winning team, right? I mean, the fact is is that as Demko goes, goes the Canucks, and that's true for just about every team that's like somewhere between 15th and 25th best in the NHL. And that's where the Canucks are. Exactly. And I would even push that number up to, you know, the 12th or 11th best team in the NHL. A lot of those times lives like that as well, right? And that's... Yeah, tw- 12 to 11, you get to like, you get to like teams like... Um, you know, even the Blues. Or, sure. I mean, there are definitely teams like the Rangers and the Predators that are super goaltending dependent, um, you know, sort of pretenders in my view, except that their goaltenders are outrageously good. But, you know, there's there's definitely 12 teams in the league that can win regardless of their goaltending, like that, yeah. are, that are legitimately good enough to overcome bad games from their goalies here and there. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in my view, there's, there's about 12. And Washington's one of them for me because of how lethal that power play is. But... You know, the, there's there's an awful lot to take away from this road trip, but I do think it starts with what you said, which is that fundamentally, when you look at these four games, right, like adjust for score effects, and the Canucks still come out at five on five over the course of these four games against the elite of the elite in the NHL at a 55% control of expected goals. That's great. That's really impressive. There's, there's no really way. Really impressive. There's no way to, there's no way to look at that and think anything but, hey, you know, that's that that's I know they only had one win, right? I know there were some moments in these games where it looked like they were the younger brother with their older brother holding them at arm's length, right? Swinging their arms wildly. 
55% is nothing to sneeze at. That's 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 an exceeds my expectations from how this club has fared at even strength on this road trip. And look, kudos to them. Kudos to them. They salvaged the trip. Yep. It was probably inevitable. They might have deserved better on this trip overall. They played well. They easily could have gotten a point in Florida, a one point from one of those games, I think. Carolina, that was uh, a Maybe Tampa. Yeah, Tampa. But you're right. They I thought they maybe were... deserve a little bit better. Yeah. I thought they were far away against um, That's fair. Against Florida. But, you know, the, the Tampa Bay game, I mean, if the Horvat Pedersen garland line cashes in at the right moment and they had their chances, right, that's a very different game. That's like a 2-2 game and maybe you get something out of it. Maybe you get a point. Maybe you lose in a shootout. Maybe whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that game was one where the, where they might deserve a point. And then, so the question becomes: if you kind of situate them in that, you know, average to slightly below average in the NHL group that needs everything clicking to consistently be competitive with you know top ten teams, how do you, as you say, there's very fine margins, very thin margins for the Canucks. How do they go about? increasing those margins and obviously a big part of it is I mean the penalty kill which has as you said become an issue again after the success early success under Bruce Boudreau getting the power play to consistently click at the level we all think it should we all believe that it's capable it will. of clicking that's a massive part of it. getting getting Pedersen back to the flank it's like oh wow Pedersen back to the flank hey that looks better yeah oh, I mean yeah no kidding he's, come on he's better suited on the flank than in come front on. of the net you don't say right come on yeah that's like, where you should be. You know, and it, it's like I hear some discussion about is Brock Besser a 30-goal scorer? And it's like, well, not if he's not on the flank on the power play. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, we, we have to be able to account for usage and its impact on player production, right? It's such an important thing to be able to do, especially with how dominant PP1s are in terms of shaping that for NHL teams, right? So, you know, Pedersen, go, Pedersen needs to live at the flank. Come on. We know this. We know this. Stop. Let's stop. Let's stop this. Pedersen at the flank. Is, is a staple for yeah. this team and needs to be for a decade um, if they can keep them. Well, and even the Horvat goal on the power play came almost right after a Pedersen one-timer from that slot, from that side, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden you have multiple threatening things on the power play going. Totally. <laughs> right? Hey, that turns out that makes a big difference. Right. Well, and, and you know, Miller Miller being the best playmaker from that flank, you know, I and mean, that's not a that's not a shock either, right? Like, Miller's the, Miller's the smartest offensive player on this team. Like, yeah. Yep. It makes sense for him to initiate. I think the power play, now that they've got it set up the right way, right? Now that they've got got it set up, at least with the four guys high that they need, and then uh, Brock at the net front, I like that. I, I'd love to see him rotate a bit uh, with Horvat, with Miller in particular. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so long as you've got that, the Canucks should have a top 10 power play. Yeah. They, and, they, and they will. I think, I mean, I feel very confident saying that at the end, at, le- at year's end, the Canucks will be top 10 on the power play and we'll have spent a lot of time hand-wringing about a top-10 NHL power play. I also feel very confident saying that at the end of the year, the Canucks will have a bottom-three penalty kill, and I don't see any solutions on this roster for that issue. Um, I similarly don't see any solutions on this roster, although getting Jack Rathbone in could help for getting more forward thrust from the back end. And and I think we sort of got an education in that, too, over the course of this road trip. Like, you, you saw how Florida attacks as a five-man unit. Right, you saw how yep. Carolina's speed from the back end feeds their sort of north-south game, their their speed game. Um, we saw Victor Hedman not just support the cycle, but key it. You know, Mikhail Sergeyev generates some of the most dangerous chances that Tampa had. Uh, even Yan Ruda forechecking. Right, there's a huge gulf between that and what we're seeing from Canucks defenders. And and if you go to the Athletic, me and Harmon have a ten observations piece up today. And one thing we did was we broke down 
which teams get the most scoring from defenders, right? And the Canucks are bottom five in the NHL in terms of overall point production from defenders, and that's with a 30-point defender in Quinn Hughes. Like he has 30 points, and the Canucks still has a blue line group, yeah. ranking the bottom five in the NHL. And the teams beneath them are the teams you'd expect. Are really bad. Like Arizona, Ottawa, New York Islanders, right? Philly. It's like, it's ugly. And now we also know, and we've talked about it a lot, the, the, the idea of the bell cow PP1 guy, right? Like, it's not reasonable to expect Oliver ekman Larson to be a 40-point guy if he's not playing PP1. Like, that's how it works. You know, 25, 30 points. That's your expectation now for, for Oliver ekman Larson without a significant heaping of power play time. And if you remove the f- number one scoring defender, so everyone's bell cow, just as like a basic proxy of how much are defenders supporting the attack across the league, the Canucks drop to tied, a tie for the bottom three with Arizona. With Arizona. I mean, that is a intractable issue, and you just cannot play like a contemporary contender with a defense that moves the puck this way, that supports the attack this way. So, you know, you put these two things together, the things we've talked about, right? The penalty kill struggling, yep. the the which is, for me, a construction issue, right? Like, there's no answer on, on this roster. We've been talking about that for months, right? Um, Scott Walker came in and did a, real, a bunch of really smart stuff to get it going a bit better. It hasn't been, even with five goals allowed in the last four games, it hasn't been historically bad. And that's an improvement. That's a massive that's improvement. A, that's a su- significant improvement. Scott Walker's work with the penalty kill is an unmitigated, unqualified success story. Yeah. Right? And it's still not good enough and, and probably not close to good enough. That becomes then something we have to talk about as a personnel issue, which I think we all know. Like, we all know this isn't a surprise. Yeah. The lack of push from the back end, the lack of dynamic puck-moving defenders who can help the Canucks transition and feed the attack. This isn't a surprise. We've known this for months. It's just the Canucks went on this run under Boudreaux, and it sort of swept some of the issues on this roster under the rug. And I think now we're beginning to get to a point where things settle in, where there's new leadership, where we're getting a chance to see how this team performs under under a new coach. We've seen that the team is performing better, without question. And... You know, there are clearly some roster construction issues that are going to need to be addressed long term by Jim Rutherford as he continues to evaluate this group. And and I think that's fascinating. Well, and as we talk about, you know, okay, where do they fit in the NHL hierarchy right now? And how do they start to climb that hierarchy and get to the legitimate Stanley Cup contender phase? As you mentioned, you know, the penalty kill special teams is really important. But as much as they have... I think impressed, it's fair to say, five on five relative to expectations this year, they still need to take a bigger jump to be, you know, a more consistently above average, good five on five team. And what you mentioned about the defense and the skill and mobility from the defense is going to be a big part of that. And I do think another thing we saw on this road trip, and I know you mentioned it uh, with Harmon Dial at the athletic as well, is the Canucks are much more well-equipped to play against heavier teams than fast teams. I don't think it's any coincidence they played their poorest game of this road trip against the Carolina Hurricanes because the Carolina Hurricanes are an incredibly fast-paced team, and they were just taking away all of the Canucks' time and space and putting so much pressure on the Canucks all game long. Against Washington, against Tampa, teams a little on the heavier side, I thought you saw you know a much more effective Canucks team, and I really thought we saw that with the Tyler Myers and Oliver Ekman-Larsen pairing. The first three games of this road trip – not great for them, and specifically in Carolina, I thought they really struggled to deal no with question. the speed from Carol with, from Carolina against Washington. I thought they played really well, and you know, lo and behold, the Canucks as a whole played much better because that pairing specifically. And 
again, it's related to the issue, I think, of scoring from the back end, but as much as we can sit here and say, oh, well, the game changes in the playoffs and becomes so much more about physicality and and size, the NHL is also trending more and more towards speed, and that's something that the Canucks are going to have to find a way to fix. Partly it's going to come from the back end and getting those skilled players on the back end, but I don't think that's, you know, this isn't, uh, hey, we'll call Jack Rathbone up and it'll be fixed. Like, it's going to require more surgery than that to this roster to eliminate that as a weakness. Well, also, you have to be fast and you have to be tough. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, you got to have both. Who who on this Canucks road trip was the most physically dominant force that the Canucks encountered? Tom Wilson. Andrei Svechnikov. Wilson played good, but he didn't punk the Canucks the way Svechnikov no. did. Svechnikov was all over the place. He he should have drawn in two penalties. He should have drawn an extra penalty on Horvat. The Canucks got very fortunate that he didn't. Um, Svechnikov was bullying the Canucks all game, like completely outmans Tyler Myers down low, right on the on the was that the Trocheck goal? Yeah, completely, and and then breaks a Brad Hunt tackle, like breaks it. Derek Henry's on skate style, right? Um, Svechnikov, you know, you you have to be fast, but you also have to be able to play like that, right? We're not talking about the Panthers and the Hurricanes as like fast teams that can't also no, 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 match no. up. Like, that's the point. You have to be so good. You have to be so good to compete with these teams. And and there's work to be done. And there's work to be done. And that's fine. Like, that's not that's not negative to point out. You know, the, this, this roster needs work. They need more push from the back end. They need more of the type of two-way intelligence that you win with to help on the PK, right? And, they, and, and if you accomplish that, if you change up the bottom six mix a bit, you know, you can get to a point where maybe you're not going to go just as Thatcher Demko goes, where you can withstand, you know, a, a, a tough stretch from your top skill players, where, you know, having guys like Pedersen shoot at 5% at 5-on-5 five five or, or a guy like Besser shoot yeah. at 3.5% for an extended stretch doesn't completely sink your season. And the Canucks just aren't in that position yet, but... I do think they performed well enough on this road trip now, right? That honestly, like, as as I try and work to see this team clearly, which is hard to do because of how much they underperformed in the first 25, because of how much they overperformed in Boudreaux's first nine, we're still sort of trying to figure out exactly what this team is while also being pretty con- confident we have some grasp on it since they've now played almost 40 games. But I do think that they played well enough on this road trip that, you know, it would give me pause recommending that like what they need is a more full-blown detonation yes. along the along the you know move Besser move Miller like touch like impact the core pieces front as opposed to hey look they need to rebuild the blue line and get some more speed and change up the bottom six mix and they might have something here. well that's what I think has been interesting you know Jim Rutherford talked about the desire to evaluate this team through January and I think he's getting the chance and I think he's getting a pretty good idea he's I if I was Jim Rutherford, I think I would feel like I'm more able now to hone in on the specifics of what needs to change rather than just looking at it and saying this team needs more talent everywhere. And obviously there's an element of that, but I think now you can start to see, okay, specifically we need the mobility on the back end. Specifically, we need to improve our penalty killing ability. You're getting a more, a much more well-defined sense of where the improvement should come from, at least to start as you start to try to climb up the standings. And as you said, that's a very different proposition than, you know what, there's nothing here to build on we need to completely blow it up and I think that's the direction 
things are trending right now. We'll continue that discussion coming up, plus an update from Elliot Friedman on where the Canucks general manager search is right now. Could it wrap up pretty soon, maybe as early as this week? Lots more coming up. Plus, don't forget, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. More Canucks talk coming up. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, another half hour here on the show. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. A uh, little Elias Pedersen talk coming up here. An update on the Canucks GM search. Also want to hear from you. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. This one came in earlier in the show, uh, Drancer, from Rager. Possibly about uh, an alter ego of yours. Rager says, I was on the street talking to some guy named Tom Dancer. Oh, no, that guy. And he wasn't very down on how the Canucks played. And then he smacked my ice cream. Out of my hand. Do you have a response, sir? That sounds like Tom Dancer. Um, Yeah, so Mr. Booth, uh, noted Twitter ne'er-do-well, has framed me in a a parody Moscow BuzzFeed article that went a little bit viral over the weekend, um, quoting Artemi Panarin as suggesting that my work in the summer of 2019 chased him, chased him out of town. He... He was considering Vancouver, but after that, no, he had to. He had to sign in New York. Um, I find this uh, amusing on a, on a ton of fronts. Mostly, mostly, <laughs> mostly that the quality of the parody is through the roof, right? Like, yes. it, like it's well written. The Moscow BuzzFeed detail is fantastic. Well done, well done. Booth, I got boothed a couple weeks ago, and I'm still mad about it. So I don't want to give him too much credit, but um, well done. I just want to remind everybody two things. One is. In June and July of 2019, I was still working for the Panthers. Yes, <laughs> we were we were more interested in recruiting Panarin <laughs> than we were than I was in in bashing the idea of signing an elite free agent to a long term deal. That- which, by the way, I wouldn't bash as 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 a rule of thumb. Um, at the time that Panarin signed in New York, I hadn't published an article in two and a half years. <laughs> That's how powerful you are. Yeah, yeah. despite yeah. that, despite those circumstances, <laughs> you could, could still scare him away. From the Vancouver Canucks. There you go. That's how. That's the, the power of negativity. Yeah, there you go. Uh, this one comes in. It's from Tanbeer, and we were just going to get on to the Elias Pettersson conversation. He says, oh, why oh, are people is Tanbeer, acting? Is Tanbeer going to smash yeah. Pettersson? Let's wow. see. Let's see. Big suspense. Big suspense for, for a take we all know is coming. Why are people acting? Like, Petey is back after just one game. Wouldn't you want to see him do it for the rest of the season before you get excited? He's got a long way to go before he's back. Emily also texts in right after that. When does Pettersson go back to playing center? And, I mean, that's really the conversation coming out of that game against Washington is how much does that do to boost your belief, your confidence, your excitement for where Elias Pettersson's game is. And obviously that's going to depend in large part to how, how concerned you were before that game against Washington. And for, for much of this season, how concerned you were 
about Elias Pettersson. But, you know, Tambor says, don't you want to see him do it for the rest of the season? It's not, I don't think it needs to be that long before you start to have that belief back. But obviously, it's got to be a string of, so, you know, the, games, weeks. But back the to answer, back. Do, do we want to see Pettersson do that for the rest of the season? Yes. Yeah, obviously. But the question <laughs> yes, is, definitely. Is, is it going to take that long for you to believe Elias Pettersson is back? For me, no. It doesn't have to be the well, entire rest of the season. No, but my belief in Pettersson being a special player has never wavered, right? Like, yeah. you know, the. So the thing I loved about Pettersson's response right and this is this is body language doctor stuff so so buckle up and prepare to yell at your radio the thing I loved about the goal right was the deke around the defenseman was genius the shot was perfect I loved that it took so much effort to unleash that it literally caused his body to get thrown to the ground right like he put all of his weight into that shot and then you know an absolute laser off the post and in so often those shots for him the last couple years have been off the post and out but it was, there was no Steve Young sigh of relief after it happened, right? It was just businesslike um, from him and from his teammates. No one reacted like, oh, you're back. Finally, we did it. Yeah. The the histrionics were saved for Canucks Twitter. And after the second goal, too, calm, cool, collected. Um, when he had a chance to get the hat trick on the open net, he didn't sell out or make or take a risk to get the third goal. He took a hit from Tom Wilson. He lost the puck. You take a hit from Tom Wilson, you lose the puck. You're probably going to lose the puck. How, yeah. how life works. Um, but he made the right play, right? He he tried to hold it down low. He made the team-oriented play as opposed to selling out for an empty calorie goal that you know maybe boosts his confidence. Um, I loved everything about all of that. And then post game, he comes out and he's talking to the media, and the framing from the question is, "Did it feel like you were never going to score again?" And he just you know, maybe a little bit petulant, certainly very dismissive, says, I know what I'm capable of. Yeah. No, I know what I'm capable of. You, you know, you're making a bigger deal out of this than it is to me. And then the question comes back and is about the mental challenge of struggling the way he has. And look, make no mistake, that has been a challenge. That side of it has been a challenge for him. You know, I do think the pressure that comes with the new contract, I do think the weight of you know the team's struggles in the first two months of the season I do think the comments in the offseason like I want to play for a winning team and then having to look around and be like I'm the reason we're struggling I think that was hard I, I do I think the way the contract negotiations played out I think missing camp I think all of it was tough I think it put him behind the eight ball I think the injury recovery has played a role like I think there's been a lot going on and there's no question that that has been mentally a challenge yeah. for him, but but he you know sort of says, oh, we're gonna, we're, this is these this are all is the, it. These are the questions. Huh? These are all the questions, eh? And then sort of gives a, a kind of polite answer, polite, tactful, non-answer. And to me, to me, that's Pedersen saying what Tanbeer's saying, right? The thing that Pedersen knows as he's answering those questions, is anything I say fuels the fire and keeps the conversation about my struggles, right? And I'm over that. I know that I can't say anything that makes this go away. All I can do is go out there and do this again and again and again until it's a joke, until, until it's like a distant memory that we laugh about, right? And he knows that. We know that. And so Tanbeer's absolutely right. And in fact, I actually think Petey agrees with him. Maybe not about Petey, but about... What needs to happen next, which is be on form, be dangerous, be lethal, 
generate the way he has since he moved to the wing three games ago and do it again and again and again until the conversation is no longer about the subject. It's not about what he says at this point. It's about what he goes out there, uh, uh, what he can go out there and do. The expectation from him is clearly excellence in this market. It should be there. That's where our bar should be for him. And I thought he demonstrated a lot of awareness, not just not just in terms of the shot, but in terms of the way he reacted to it, in terms of the way he handled himself through the rest of that game, and in terms of the way that he handled that media availability. Even if it wasn't good copy, I think it was a pretty significant window into his awareness of where his game is at and what needs to come next from him. And I thought he demonstrated some of that confidence that you want to see in that media availability, right? I know some people are texting in calling it pouty or petulant or whatever, but I didn't think it was that. It was just, he was being honest. And at a certain point, well, I said it was want. petulant. Well, but I don't think it is petulant really yeah. like it's, or at least not in a negative sense. Like he can be frustrated with that line of questioning but without it being, to me, petulance suggests that it's getting to him in some way. You know what I mean? The meta commentary. Yeah. The meta commentary was, you know, was what it was. I, I don't That's think we. Fair. I don't think we need to dress it up. Uh, it's fine. Um. But I. But I reject the idea that it was pouty. I thought it was self-aware. I thought it yeah. was actually really clever in terms of deflecting the conversation and 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 demonstrating an awareness of what he needs to do to change that conversation. And it's it's just, he knew he couldn't say anything. He knew he couldn't say anything. And in that environment, he wasn't going to. The other conversation around Elias Pettersson now is also what position is he going to play in? And unsigned tax comes in. Pettersson can be both a special player and a winger. He's not a center, definitely not a top-line center. That Stop. doesn't mean he can't be a special player. We also have a question saying, I uh, think we'll ever get to see the lotto line reunited for a game. Well, not if the Miller-Besser-Pearson unit keeps playing like this. And to the Elias Pettersson at center conversation, that that is not over. That's not even close to over, right? They're not they're not kissing that goodbye. It's great that he's moved to the wing and started playing a lot better. And hey, if they keep having success with him on the wing, yeah, he'll play on the wing for a little bit more. But they are going to put him back at center at some point. It's only a matter of time, right? Before they're they're not going to give up on that part of Elias Pettersson's game right now. Leave him at wing. Leave him at wing, right? I think clearly he needed a change. Right, I think sometimes you just need a change. Sometimes you just need something different. And I think this wing change has got him going. Like some of the things that I look for in in Pedersen, right? Is he drawing penalties? Well, he has two in the last three yep. games at five on five. Love to see it. Um, obviously, is he scoring? Yeah, got two the last game. Is he generating chances? Yeah, I mean he should probably have five points from the last three games. He had the spin pass to Horvat. He had the you know yawning cage that uh, he duffed off his heel in the Tampa game. Um, they obviously hit the post in Carolina. Um, there's there's chances being generated in bunches. I, I love to see it. Um, his shot rate is up. His uh, shot attempt rate is up. He leads the team in expected goals for rate, individual expected goals for rate, over the course of the past three games, and not by a little bit, by like half an expected goal over JT Miller, who's the next closest on the team. Uh, when things are going, leave it. Just, you know, uh, just leave it. If it's not broke, don't fix it is the old, is the old term, right? Um, just leave it. And so I, I expect him to get a run at the wing as he gets his footing and, and gets going again. But I think he's a center and, and not because of what we've seen previously, but because of the nature of his game and the nature of the center position. Centers touch the puck more, right? Centers think uh, need to think the game at a higher level somewhat, right? They need to be a little bit more deliberate in their movement. Uh, they need to play in the center of the ice. And, and one of Pedersen's best attributes 
is that he goes to the net with extreme discipline and is willing to pay the price despite his size disadvantage or his weight disadvantage anyway. Um, all of that, to me, screams center. Uh, additionally, I just think you want the puck in his hands yep. as much as possible. The, uh, uh, the last thing is, on the wing, I want guys who play faster and win battles along the wall. Again, you know, I'm not sure either uh, sort of requirement necessarily suits Pedersen's game as well as playing in the center of the ice. So, you know, right now, I mean, I think the Canucks have a center who's going really well, who plays better on the wing in JT Miller. And I think the Canucks have a winger who's going pretty well. Who's ultimately going to be a center. Who's ultimately better off in the middle. But, you know, you can't argue with how those lines are performing. And and it's a good mark of versatile players. Like, that's... That's great. That that's not a that's a good problem to have. Well, right? the other thing is we've heard from Bruce Boudreau about the allure of having Miller, Pedersen, Horvat, and having that strength down the middle, right? And maybe you know I know you think Miller is ultimately a winger, but I I do think the Canucks and Bruce Boudreau want to at some point again explore that possibility of having those three line up down the middle, so you have that real strength uh, at the premium position of center quickly I, I just don't think I just don't think and historically the data backs this up I just don't think that JT Miller is the same quality of play driver in the middle that he is on the wing um and and one last thing I just want to bring this up really quickly before we pivot who do you think is fourth among Canucks forwards in five on five ice time uh, over the course of this road trip oh boy is it Tyler Mott it is Yuho Lamico. let's go Lammy let's go um Fifth is Elias Pettersson. So Lamico is playing more than Pettersson on this road trip. Uh, sixth is Tyler Mott, who you guessed correctly. And that, of course, is more than um, some other, you know, good players. Some yep. other guys that you think of as Canucks top six players. Um, sorry, you know what? I had that wrong. Lamico, four. Horvat, five. Mott, Mott six. six. Pettersson, uh, seven. And then Highmore, eight. And then Hoaglander and Pod Colson. Like, that fourth line is playing a ton. And yep. they're playing well. They're playing well. They've outscored their opponents on this trip three to one with them on the ice, but I I do think they're being overplayed a they little bit. They are the apple of Bruce Boudreaux's eye and, right now. And look, they've earned it, right? They've earned it. They've earned some leash. They've earned some run. They've scored. They've prevented goals. They've outchanced their opponents when they're on the ice. Uh, they've outshot their opponents when they're on the ice. But that's that's one part of Vancouver's good five on five form over the course of the past four games that I'd I'd be side-eyeing to use a, a favorite quote of mine yeah uh, side-eyeing is is not likely to last well it also it coincided with them playing well and a bunch of other of the top six forwards not playing well totally. right and as as the top six part reverts you expect to see uh, that ice time come down for the bottom guys a, as especially well. niels hoaglander who's had a really tough trip yeah, exactly okay quickly i promised you an update from elliot friedman uh on where the canucks gm search stands let's hear it. this is from earlier today on jeff merrick's show here's what elliot friedman had to say just to say, we're waiting for Jim Rutherford to announce the name Patrick Alvin. So, uh, someone said to me this this past weekend that they they think it's that it's four uh, now, not five. Um, but I, you know, again, that's um, tough to say for sure. I had I had someone tell me this weekend they weren't convinced it was going to be Alvin. Um, however. Like the one thing that always scares me around this time, Jeff, it's like the draft and the trade deadline, and sometimes missing, yeah, misinformation. <laughs> it's like the old Isaiah Thomas lesson he taught me early in my career around the trade around the draft. Everybody lies, um, but sometimes I think, uh, you know, there's so much conflicting information, and sometimes people throw things out there to throw people off. So it's tough for me to tell if that's real or it's 
you know, one of those pieces of misinformation. Um, you know, one of my rules I, I really believe in is that the intel you get at the beginning of the search generally holds up until you're told significantly otherwise. And, you know, a lot of people looked at uh, Alvin from the beginning. We did, too. So until I'm completely proven that that is off and not the case anymore, uh, I go with that. I, I will say this. I I have heard that Scott Mellonby's put together a pretty strong case, so we'll see. But mm-hmm. again, again, I am in a situation where I think that Vancouver is looking definitely at multiple hires, and I wonder if more than one of them comes from the group of finalists there. That is Elliot Friedman earlier today. Of course, Friedman from Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada, the 32 Thoughts podcast with an update on the Canucks GM search. And there's a lot in that clip. I mean, number one, Friedman still believes that Patrick Alvine is the front runner, despite some smoke screens maybe that he thinks have been out there. The other interesting thing is that he thinks it's going to wrap up this week, that we will see a Canucks new general manager named this week, which is very interesting. And, you know, as we continue to look ahead towards the trade deadline, obviously getting that top executive in place as soon as this week makes a lot of sense for Jim Rutherford, the other interesting thing that stood out to me there is the idea of hiring multiple people from this kind of pool of four or five finalists. And he mentioned Alvin, he mentioned Scott Mellenby. You know, Friedman has also said there might be an expanded role from for Ryan Johnson coming from internally. Uh, still, the thinks Rutherford is interested in hiring somebody like Jennifer Botterill as well. And you start to hear all of these names and all of these hires that he wants to make. And to me, it just really drives home. You know, Jim Rutherford is dead serious about being aggressive and committing a lot of resources to building out this front office. Like, they're talking about a lot of different and very intriguing options as they go through this search. Yep. Um, still waiting for a more progressive name to surface. I- I'm still of the strong view that Rutherford has been at his best with significant, like, uh, generalist, high-level strategy managerial help, um, you know, some some of those reality check guys, guys like Botterill and Carmanos, really filled that role for him in Pittsburgh, and their departures uh, seemed to um, mark the end uh, of Pittsburgh's like golden run, where yep. everything they touched turned to gold. Um, so you know, I'm still hopeful that that a name like that will surface, that someone who's an experienced negotiator or an experienced cap manager uh, will emerge here. In the search, I think that's an area that the Canucks desperately need help, especially as they navigate the complexity of the 23-man roster at the moment. And and that's not going to get simpler in the years ahead. Like, let's, no. let's be real. So, um, you know, I'm still waiting to see that. I, you know, Mellon B, Alvin, talented evaluators. Um, could we see both of them? That's that's sort of what that implied to me. That's, that's the interesting that's, question That was me. the big thing that I sort of took from that. Uh, Alvin, of course, a guy with amateur background. Yep. Mellon be a guy with pro background. That would seem to match pretty closely with Derek Clancy's overall experience. But but Derek Clancy's also a player personnel guy. So really his experience is blending the two uh, to some extent. So I, I don't know that they're necessarily uh, derivative hires. Um, but again, again, who's going to be the AGM in this organization? Who's the big picture strategy guy? Or is that Rutherford? Yeah. And and is Rutherford going to do it alone, or or does he expect Alvin and Mellonby and Clancy himself to to contribute to in that area? Some of the load on that, and I agree. If you reading between the lines of that Friedman clip, it sounds like Patrick Alvin the front runner to be the GM. But based on what Scott Mellonby did in 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 the interview process, they're kind of looking at it and saying 
man, we really like this guy. Is there any way we can figure out to get both of them in the organization? Because we're high on both of them. And that's before you even get to promoting Ryan Johnson, hiring, you know, a Jennifer Botterill, hiring somebody to do your analytics. Well, right? and it's not necessarily just Jennifer Botterill. Right, I think there's you know other I mean. there's yeah. other candidates in the in the pool for that. And then and then director level hires. Rutherford's always had had very had had a bunch of directors with significant portfolios. Uh, you think about Scott Young in Pittsburgh. You think about uh, Clancy himself. You think about Sam Ventura. Um, you know, the, typically speaking, uh, Rutherford has run with a, a pretty robust uh, group of directors as well. Uh, I'll be curious to see not just the AGM level, but but exactly what this front office looks like. Uh, again, though, I, I do think an emphasis on the 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 high level strategy guys is is necessary especially because even if Rutherford's going to handle that portfolio himself and he's tended not to have a director of hockey operations right uh, he's usually been an executive director of hockey op- operations at least in Pittsburgh so he clearly does like to handle that stuff in a, in a hands on way but when you have multiple people who understand CBA minutia who understand some of this big picture strategy stuff. You can bounce ideas off and get to an even better conclusion as a result of shared expertise. That's that's how collaboration works. I still think that's a really crucial area for the Canucks to fill in. And again, according to Elliot Friedman, hires in the front office could come as soon as this week for the Canucks. That's going to do it for us here on the Canucks Hour. As a reminder, another early game tomorrow for the Canucks against the National Predators. So we will be on an hour earlier at 11 to facilitate the pregame show and all of that. Coming up next here on Sportsnet 650, it's the People Show, Bick Nazar, and myself filling in for Randy Janda. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.